Just so you don't look confused, I am not Dr. Tim. I would like to introduce Dr. Miller this afternoon. Um, some of you remember, uh, I think probably most of you remember, walking through 27, 28 books of the, chapters of the book of Isaiah and seeing the sovereignty of God played out on so many levels, as well as seeing illustrations of it and statements of it. Uh, one of the amazing things is when you look at the sovereignty of God is seeing how God connects the dots. A few years back, God connected the dots by bringing, two, bringing together two theology nerds on the same plane. Uh, these two theology nerds met at the same conference, got to know each other, became fast friends, and now in God's providence, a few years later, they are co-laboring on a commentary on 1 Peter. One of them you know very well, Pastor Brian, uh, but the other one you don't know as well, and it's Dr. Tim Miller. Uh, I got the honor to do this because he is teaching at my alma mater at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. He's been there for six years as one of the professors. I don't know exactly. I know he teaches New Testament and probably whatever else they give him to teach, right? Uh, but it's good to have him with us. I, I know that with the singing, our, our worship together, what a great preparation for the preaching of God's word. And as he comes, he's going to start today uh, looking at Ephesians, looking at the gospel, but then he's going to take a journey with us through 1 Peter. And what a great, again, connecting of God's dots for us in his sovereign hand that as we've been kind of a scattered church, a little bit on the exile side of things, and Peter writes a letter to believers who are exiles. So I'm looking forward to his ministry with us, his wife Hannah and his daughters. I'm going to go 10, 9, and 7, and he'll figure out what that is. And you guys, it's not because he has kids like Elon Musk. He'll explain who 10, 9, and 7 are. But it's a pleasure to have Dr. Tim Miller with us as he preaches. Tim, if you come. All right, can you hear me? Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, I just got encouragement from my daughter. She's never said this before, but I was about to get up here and she said, Dad, you got this. So, and I tell you, I, I feel like this is home already. I walked in and a number of you had introduced yourselves and I knew uh, that there was love in this assembly when somebody warned me where I sat. They said, listen, you really want to sit in a row with an air conditioner. And uh, so already divulging the, the serious building tips in my direction. I'm grateful for that. One of my other daughters, actually it was the same one, um, this, this afternoon when we came in, she saw the donuts, asked whether she could have one, and we discovered that they were there for the taking. And she looked at me with just joy in her eye, and she just said, this is going to be here every week. <laughs> now, I don't know if it is, but, but, uh, but it better be. Is uh, essentially from, the, from a nine-year-old girl. She's looking forward to that. Well, I am grateful for God's providence as well. Uh, from that fateful plane ride many, many years ago, I saw Brian across the way, and I said, you know, I wonder if he's going to the same conference as I am. And then we arrived at the conference, and then I was walking around the halls, and I saw him, and I said, hey, you must be from the Detroit area. And he said, yeah, I'm from Belleville. And so we began to have lunch together, and, and that continued uh, together, and, and I'm just so grateful for, for Brian and for the work that he was able to do here with this assembly, 
And I'm grateful for the opportunity that uh, in God's sovereignty has been provided for me to be able to come and to proclaim the, the word to you this morning. So I mentioned we're here in Ephesians chapter 2. I'd like to read the first 10 verses and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Here's what the book of Ephesians tells us. And you were dead. And the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you join me as we go to our Lord together in prayer? Father in heaven, we are grateful For this passage of scripture, a rich passage describing for us the redemption that you provided in your son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask this afternoon as we look into your word that you would make it real to us. That as we hear your word, we hear your voice and know what you have taught us. Help us to leave from here a changed people, more closely aligned with who you are because of what we have heard this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I will be working through a a series on the book of 1 Peter, and, and I'm excited about that, but when I was thinking about the first message I wanted to present here at this church, I thought, there's nothing better than looking at the gospel. Now, I know that last week, Romans 3 was preached, and that's a microcosm of the gospel. Ephesians 2 is likewise, but in a different cast. It views redemption from the lens of what God is doing in the midst of people, of your heart and of my heart. And I thought, here's a church in which God is currently at work reforming, reshaping, and refashioning according to the gospel. And I thought it would be a helpful thing for us to consider this. Now, I'm going to use a certain analogy to try and draw out the principles of this passage. And just to express to you how strange of a person you've invited to be in your pulpit for the next number of weeks, uh, I'll admit to you that one of uh, the weird things about me is that I love to watch infomercials. Anybody else? Just encourage me. Okay, all right. so, So there's a couple of others who are here. And then I... You know, I've got a feeling there are a lot of you, but you just are so embarrassed that you don't want to raise your hand. Okay, that's what I'm going to believe. One of the things about infomercials is that they're all the same infomercial with a different product. Have you ever noticed this? 
They begin by telling you how bad of a situation of life you're in. Now, of course, this is often so unrealistic that it's comical. Uh, they act as though you, you can't live in life in a certain situation in which you're in, but they try and draw a picture of how bad something is. And then they draw a picture of how good it could be. And then they present their product to show you what it is that would transform you. And I'm going to say today that that method of showing the, the ugly, showing the beautiful after, and then showing the potent product is precisely what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 2. Now, now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not suggesting that he's a salesman, that he's doing anything like that. But he is connecting with us to show us what life looks like outside of Christ, what life looks like inside Christ, and how to get from the one to the other. So let's begin by looking at the ugly before. What does unredeemed life look like? Well, you'll notice that it actually starts in a very starkly bad way. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead. Doesn't get much worse than that, my friends. I've been to numerous funerals, and one of the things you don't expect in a funeral is for anybody to get up out of that grave. You know that this is the final celebration of this person's life because they cannot rise from the dead. There's no worse situation to be in in this life than dead. And Paul here directs his, our attention to the fact that prior to coming to Christ, we were dead. What exactly does it mean that we were dead? Because, of course, here we are, and you came here, and as you were driving here, maybe you crossed a bridge and you saw a bunch of people and boats, and, and I don't know how many of those know the Lord, but perhaps, probably some of them do not. And the scripture would describe them here as dead. And yet they are alive. So in what sense are they dead? Do you remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God made a promise to them. He said, if you eat of this fruit, in the day you eat of it, what will happen? You will surely die. Now that's an odd statement in light of the fact that we know that they ate that fruit, and did they immediately die? It's a bit of a trick question. I think the answer is yes, they did. You see, because there are three forms of death in Scripture. The first form of death is spiritual death. Death refers to the separation. Of course, we're most common with physical death. Physical death is the separation of our spirits from our bodies. But there is a form of death that is called a spiritual death. And then there's an eternal death. And we're not going to deal with the eternal death today. But the spiritual death is when our spirits are separated from the creator, the one who's made us. And we no longer have harmony and relationship with God the Father. And let me say, when Adam and Eve sinned, they died. That relationship was broken. Now, Adam and Eve were in a unique situation that you and I are not in. Because here's the odd thing about us. I think most times when we read this passage, we say, and you were dead in your trespasses. How we read that, how we think about it is, <clears throat> we are dead because we sin. That is not Paul's thought. That is true of Adam and Eve. 
But do you know what's true of us? Is we sin because we're dead. We sin because we're dead. That is, spiritual death produces in us sin because we are separate from our Creator. And so he says here, and you were dead in what way? Well, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, you'll have to remember that Paul is describing what they once were. He's saying this is true of reality for those who are outside of Christ, including you before you came to Christ. Here's what you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And then he describes this in three ways. He says this in verse 2, in which you once walked, following first the course of this world. Now he's describing three ways in which we're dead and the, and the ways in which that evidenced itself in our lives. First, we walk according to the course of this world, the direction that the rest of the world walks. Uh, we're facing a real tide shift in the United States of America over the last 20 years. We recognize that. But you know, over the last maybe 70 years or so, the United States of America has been quite an anomaly. It's been a weird place. Where the idea that the themes of Christian theology might in some way be broadcast and accepted by a broader culture, that's actually the weird thing. We tend to think that the weird thing is that it's changing. Actually, historically, it's almost always been that Christians have walked the opposite way of the rest of culture. The way of the world is this direction, but here's the thing about those who are redeemed in Christ, they no longer walk that way. I think of it in terms of, of an analogy. Have you ever been to a, a University of Michigan football game? Have you ever forgotten your phone and then tried to go back for it when everyone's walking out? How will that fare for you? Well, first of all, your phone's probably not there anymore, by the way. But second of all, the whole realm is going this direction, and you might be seeking to go the other direction. But here's what Paul is saying. This is the natural course in which the whole of the world, the world goes this direction, and that's the direction you were going. You were going just like everyone else. Second, perhaps more surprising for our broader culture is this. You are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, what exactly does this odd phrase mean? You're following the prince of the power of the air? In essence, what Paul's saying here is you are following Satan. That's, that's a description of Satan. The prince of the power of the air refers to the realm that exists between the heavenly realm and between the earthly realm. Now, of course, Scripture elsewhere calls Satan the God of this world. 1 John chapter 5 says this, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's not popular to say today. People don't like hearing it. But I think what Paul is telling us is that the direction of the world is one that is motivated by a spirit that is not God's spirit. There are a lot of people who would like to think that they sit on the fence. They might not be religious, they might not be for Jesus, but they're certainly not against Jesus. But do you recall what Jesus said? 
Those who are not with me are against me. Do you see there's always a spirit at work among humanity? And the question is, which spirit is at work in humanity? Paul tells us, the ugly before is described this way. You follow the course of the world, but you follow the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I am convinced Paul is drawing a a contrast between the spirit that is at work in believers and the spirit that is at work in this world. Do not forget in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, put on the full armor of God because you are battling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against things of spiritual darkness for which our physical eyes cannot see, but are as real as the physical things that we can. You see, the ugly before first tells us that we're following the course of the world. Second, we're following the prince of the power of the air. But third, unless we think that this is all outside of ourselves, notice what he says in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. He first says we're following the course of the world. Second, he says we're following the prince of this world. Third, and most personally, we're following the desires of our own hearts. Following the desires of our own flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Here we find that the problem is not external. The problem is not external. The problem is internal. Indeed, we have found the enemy, and the enemy is ourselves. We live in a culture today, in a world today, that tells us that if there's a problem, that the problem exists somewhere outside of ourselves, because humanity is, in essence, naturally good. But do you see what Paul is saying here? You are dead. And you're dead not because you sinned, but you sin because you're dead. You see, that's where we start. That's where we begin. We begin spiritually dead. If you want a source for so many of the misunderstandings that our culture has about humanity itself, it is this, that our culture at large believes that humanity is in essence good. At heart, we're good people. And it's just culture, it's just society, it's things outside of us that corrupt us. But when we read scripture, it says no. The corruption has already taken place within our hearts. And society is bad because we are bad. Do you see, the problem begins with the inside. And of course, when we read this passage and it says that we lived carrying out the desires of our flesh, I think immediately most of us think towards the sexual side of things. But listen to what Galatians chapter 5 says the desires of the flesh are. I think you might be surprised. He says, now the flesh, the works of the flesh are evident. And he begins where we might think. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Did you notice what he says about the desires of the flesh? 
We are, our, our minds automatically go one direction, but, but Paul says, yes, that is the desires of the flesh, but here are the other desires of the flesh. It's the anger that's in our hearts. It's the jealousy. It's the going after and the desiring things that are not ours. It's the fighting because we have to have our own way. These are the lusts of the flesh. And friends, we must admit that even post-Christ, these things are still evident within our hearts. Paul is describing here the ugly before, and he says, all of us are dead, or were dead, in our trespasses and sin, following the prince of the power of the air, following the world, following our own spirits, or our own flesh. And notice what he says about this. He notes that there's nobody who's excused from this. Nobody who's naturally born good. Nobody is outside of the realm of this deadness because notice again he says, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. Notice this in the end of that verse, and were by nature children of wrath. Do you know what that phrase, were by nature children of wrath, means? Paul uses it elsewhere. He says, I was born by nature a Jew. You know what that means? When I was born, this is just the way it was. I was a Jew. And here what Paul says is we were born and by nature we were children of wrath and don't miss the next part, like the rest of mankind. And again, I think this needs to be repeated because we live in a world today that says that the problem with humanity is that we're just not being genuine enough to ourselves. We're not saying to ourselves, yes, this is who I am and I need to live that out. The scripture says, we are, we begin, corrupt. And friends, I don't know, I don't know a worse way to seek to describe what humanity naturally is like than reading these verses. Paul, as he paints this picture of the ugly before, it is ugly. But Praise be to God, it doesn't end there. Because we see a beautiful after. It begins in verse 4. And these two words, in my opinion, are some of the richest words I've ever read in my whole life. But God. Do you know what it doesn't say? I think sometimes that's a healthy thing for us to, to look at. What does it not say? Here's what it doesn't say. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world. We were going the way that Satan desired. We were following the desires of our flesh, which are fallen. But then we got up. Then we stood up and we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We got out of the coffin. And isn't that great? Do you know why Paul didn't say that? Because we couldn't. That's the reason. Do you see... If God had not stepped in, there would be no hope. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. So what did God do? Well, notice a few things about this beautiful after. The first thing Paul tells us, he he tells us three major things that God did on our behalf. And the first is this, God made us alive. And again, remember, what was our chief difficulty? We were dead. 
He had to make us alive. But God, it says in verse 4, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Now, I've just drawn or attempted to draw, as the Apostle Paul draws the picture of the ugly before. Does that person, as I describe them, as Paul describes them, are they rather lovable people? Or would you say that the God who created us would not necessarily naturally look at us as lovable creatures? And this is Paul's point because he says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He loved us. He loved us. And of course, we live in a culture today that loves to say that love is this feeling. Love isn't primarily a feeling. It may have feelings. Love is an action. And what was the action? God sent his son to solve our problem. Why would he do such a thing? Notice that first phrase it says, but God being rich in mercy. Mercy is the giving of what we do not deserve. And you know, here's what the scriptures describe in God. And here, here's how I like to picture it. Imagine a cup and your waitress coming over. Maybe it's a coffee cup. Maybe it's just a cup of water. And she comes over with a pitcher to fill, to fill it back up. And she starts filling, but she doesn't stop. And it just overflows and overflows. Now, of course, that would be a problematic situation. You wouldn't want to be in that. But here is the idea that's being expressed here in in reference to God's mercy. God's mercy is overflowing. He is rich in mercy. He describes himself as one who is slow to anger and abounding and steadfast love. When we were at our worst, God took mercy upon us. He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. And what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. And I think this points at something very important for us not to miss. If you were going to be raised from the dead... If you were going to come out of your casket, what was the prerequisite for that to happen? That Jesus first rose from the dead. You see, this is why Paul later, do you remember what he says about the resurrection? He says, now I hear some of you are saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. But here's the bottom line. If there is no resurrection, then you are still in your sins. There is no salvation. It was the declaration of righteousness of Jesus that is shared with us so that we too might rise from our graves. He made us alive together with Christ. If you're looking at your Bible, you see that there's this phrase that's indented by these dashes. And the reason that the translators put those dashes there is because formally what Paul is saying at this point is supposed to be reserved for a little bit later. But here's why I think Paul puts it here. It's because he's so excited 
that he can't but, but say it. Uh, you'll notice this a little bit later. He talks about grace in just a little bit. But he's saying, by, so, so God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. Oh, by grace you've been saved. And then he goes on. And he tells us the second thing that God did on our behalf. Second, he raised us up. So he made us alive, gave us life, but then he put us on our feet. The third thing then, he raised us up with him. And then the third thing is uh, perhaps the hardest thing to understand in reference to this passage. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you're familiar with Ephesians and you're familiar with Colossians, you know this is a word picture that that Paul loves. He says that we've been raised with Christ and our life is hidden with Christ in God. We are seated at the right hand of the Father with him. And I think all that Paul is attempting to say here is this, that we are united with Christ and his destiny is ours. Oh, friend, did you catch that? We are united with Christ, and his destiny is ours. He shares with us all that he has. And he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he has sat down, and he has finished his race. Romans chapter, or Hebrews chapter 12, remember this? Look to the author and finisher of our race, who for the joy that was before him endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the Father. You see, the one who already ran the race, he's seated. And Paul is saying, we have a promised seat within in the heavenly places. Oh, what a glorious joy. This is what God has done for us. The beautiful after. So I said earlier, I don't know that we could have drawn a picture that's worse than Paul draws at the beginning of this passage, but I'm not sure we could draw a picture that's better than he draws in the middle of this passage. He then says this in verse 7. And this addresses why it is that Christ has done this. Why did God send his son on our behalf? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean when he says, in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. And here's my wonderful answer. I don't know. And that's actually the glorious thing. In fact, Paul tells us that the things that God has prepared for us are beyond our imagination. We can't even fathom them. I think sometimes of Einstein's discoveries. And if you've ever tried to understand a little bit of what Einstein understood, you're not going to get very far. But if you can glimpse even just a little bit, what you discover is that reality is so much more complex than we've ever imagined. And then I think the God who created this complexity, which is far beyond all of this, has a complexity far beyond that. What could eternity look like? I have no clue. But here's what Paul is saying. Here's why God redeemed you. It wasn't just so that you could have redemption in this life. It was for that. So that you would have unity with him. So that you would have harmony of relationship. It certainly was that. 
But notice his purpose point. So that in the ages to come, he might continue to unfold the riches of this glory. And if you think today, boy, this salvation is great. Wait till you see what he has in store. I can't wait. And it's all because of the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we've seen the ugly before. We've seen the beautiful after. How do you get from the ugly before to the beautiful after? What's the, as we might call it, the potent product? It tells us here in Ephesians 2 verse 8. Probably a passage. If you've been around church for a while, you know well. For by grace, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Do you see the potent product is the grace of God? What exactly do we mean by the grace of God? Well, Paul clarifies for us. He says, for by grace you've been saved. What exactly is this grace? Well, it, it's that which is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The gift of God. Imagine with me that uh, it's, it's Christmas morning and my daughters uh, wake up at 3.30 in the morning. You know, it's probably not hard to imagine. But they, they wake up rather early. And, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I, still sleeping because we were just wrapping the presents, uh, you know, a couple of minutes ago. Um, they come and wake us up. And we go into the uh, living room and they begin to unwrap their presents. And so my daughter unwraps her present. She gets, I don't know, let's just say a new bike, all right? Didn't know what it was in that package. So she unwraps it, gets the new bike, so excited. And then she goes and gets her wallet, her purse. And she takes out $150. And she comes and hands it to me and says, thanks, Dad. Here you go. How would I feel as a father if my daughter had done that? I would say, I don't think you understand how this whole thing works. This is a gift. It's not something you can pay for. I don't want your payment. Your money is no good here. I am giving you a gift. And there are so many in our world today who say, I will have Christ's salvation. I would like that. But I must pay for some of it. And Jesus says, there is no payment. It is a gift of God. In fact, there's a reason why you cannot pay for it. And he tells us here, this is not your own doing. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Why is that important? When we are in eternity and we have made it into the heavenly realm, how many of us will say, whew, man, I did it. I did it. I'm glad I went to church that Sunday. 
Man, I'm, I'm so grateful that I gave that money. I tithed as much as I could. I, I did this, that, and the other thing. Whoo, yeah. Check me out. You know how many people will say that? Zero. None. Do you know what every one of us will be saying? He did it. Jesus paid it all. All to him, I owe. He is worthy, we just say. Do you see, there's a reason it's a gift. Now, of course, partly, the reason that we can't pay for it is we have nothing to pay. We have, no, we have, we have nothing that God would look at and say, well, that might be worth something. We can never pay God. But at the end of the day, it's done this way so that God would receive all of the glory. No one will boast. Here is the potent product. And so, my friend, today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's, it's actually quite a simple process to go from the ugly before to the beautiful after. It's based upon the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, because we were in the casket, dead in our trespasses and sins, we could not help ourselves. We could not stand up. We could not rise ourselves from the dead. And so God had to solve our problem. And here's how he did it. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to bear our sin in his body on the tree. The cross of Christ was Jesus taking the weight of sin on his shoulders. And then having done that, he then handed to us his righteousness. You know, when Adam and Eve sinned, their righteousness was wiped away. They had none to offer. And if they could not offer righteousness, they could not stand in God's presence. And at that moment, a plan had to be enacted that would make a way for mankind to have true righteousness. And that occurred with Jesus, who himself being fully righteous, died for our sins and then gives to us his righteousness. And do you know how you get it? You simply ask. That's as simple as it is. People want to make it complicated. It's not. The glorious gift is this. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in such a way that they are willing to turn from that which they were, the ugly before, he has promised that he will raise them from the dead, raise them up with Christ, and give them a seat in the heavenly places. But you know, I've only gone through verse 9. There's a verse 10. And this verse 10 is what I'd like to say is uh, maybe a product guarantee. It's, it's a statement that indicates that God's gift will do its work. And here's what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word workmanship is an interesting one. It comes from the word poieto. That's not important that you know that. The reason I bring it up, though, is that it's, it's the same word we get the, Greek, or the English word poem from. 
It's a work that someone would do. This is the same word that someone would use in reference to creating something. And here's what it's saying about us. We are God's workmanship. Maybe you could change that to say that we are God's masterpieces. We are God's artistic creations. And here's what he's done. He took a canvas that was deeply marred, that was blotchy, that was the ugly before. And through Christ, he has begun to make a new portrait out of our lives. We are his masterpieces, created in Christ Jesus, note the next part, for the purpose of good works. And he destined this from eternity past that you should walk in it. Oh, my friend, consider today that your life is a life in which God is shaping and fashioning today to be more and more like his son. Sometimes that's painful, but it's a glorious process by which God changes his people. And so those who are truly redeemed, those who have truly gone from the ugly before to the beautiful after by the potent product of grace will be changed because God, when he does something, never fails. And if he's made us new for the purpose of good works, then we will indeed have those good works. So where do we go from here? I want you to notice the contrast that Christ brings in the life of those who believe. Once we were dead, but now we have been raised with Christ. Once we followed the world, the flesh, and the devil, now we follow the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. Once we were controlled by the Spirit who's at work in this world, but now we are controlled by the Spirit of God. Indeed, we were called sons of Satan, the sons of this world, but now we are the sons of God. Paul called us the children of disobedience. Oh, but friends, now in Christ you are the children of obedience. Sin and death, that was your doing. Grace and kindness was granted to you. Once you were the recipients of wrath, children of wrath by nature, but now, by the work of God, you are the recipients of grace, mercy, kindness, and love. Oh, friends, the ugly before was ugly. The beautiful, before, the beautiful after is indeed glorious in beauty. And so, my call to you today is this. If you have not trusted in Christ... I don't want to be offensive, but the description that the Apostle Paul just expressed about the ugly before is true of you. Whether you can fathom it or not, it is true of you. And there's a glorious promise to those who would trust in Christ to believe in him. And so would you submit to him today? For those of you who do know the Lord, let me ask you this question. How is God at work in your life shaping and fashioning you as a masterpiece of his grace? There should be evidence somewhere. 
In some way, you should be saying, here's what God is doing in my life. And if we say, well, he really isn't doing too much, then we're either saying, I'm kind of good already. I mean, this is already a masterpiece. Hopefully you wouldn't say that. Or perhaps we're not pursuing God in the way that we ought to be pursuing him. How is God reshaping and fashioning you? And if you say today, I can't think of something, would you today go to the Lord and say, Lord, would you show me how I can change to be more like your son? Reveal that to me, Father, because I want to be. Father, I'm thankful today for these dear saints gathered together to hear your word. I'm thankful for the opportunity you've given to me to open the word. I'm grateful that though I once was dead in my sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of this world, following the desires of my own flesh, but you, God, reached in and by grace gave me new life. I thank you that today I know that there are many in this congregation who resonate with the story that I just gave because it is their story. They too have come to new life in Christ. But Father, it may be that there are some who do not yet know you and I trust today. I pray today that your spirit would work on their hearts that they might come to know you. That they might address me or one of the others who've been up on the stage today to ask how their soul might be put right with God, with you. I pray, Father, for the saints among this congregation, those who are trusting in your Son, I ask that they would be looking in the mirror of your word daily, seeking to see ways in which they can be further conformed to the image of your Son. Thank you that you are never through with us, that you are continuing to make us your masterpieces of grace. Continue to do it for your own glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.